It's time for the Predator Way Podcast with your hosts, Peyton Turner, scores, and Boyd Farish. What a goal! The show starts now. Yes, sir! And welcome into the first edition of the Predator Way podcast on Penalty Box Radio. I'm your host, Peyton Turnage, play-by-play announcer for Penalty Box Radio, and joined alongside with feature writer for Penalty Box Radio, Boyd Farish. Boyd, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Peyton. How are you? I'm great. Uh, ready for some hockey. With I think summer is... We're not used to uh, such a long summer as this, uh, so ready for hockey to come back. The weather's starting to get a little bit cooler, and... Soon enough, uh, we're about to have training camp start up in, in less than a week, I believe. Yeah, that's right. We've got uh, rookies reporting at, at the time of this uh, recording. Rookies are reporting tomorrow. So, big things coming soon. Oh, doesn't, doesn't it feel nice, you know, <laughs> the, the cool air and going into the rink for the first time and, and God knows when. And when, when was the last – did you go to any games last year? Any press Yeah, games? I managed, managed, to make it to, managed to make it to a few doing all of the uh, COVID protocols, which was uh, certainly an interesting experience, but certainly glad to be able to get back this year and start to get back into the excitement of, of watching NHL hockey. I got to say, this was my first year since being a fan in the 04 season that I did not go to a Preds game. So a little, little different experience for me, but you know, obviously that was before I got vaccinated and all that, all that good stuff. So, yeah, glad to see Preds hockey coming back. Hopefully for a full 82 game season this time around. Knock on wood. And as we mentioned, that we're getting a whole new look to this Predators team. The winds of change have been blowing through this summer, and GM David Poyle has initiated what he has coined as a competitive rebuild, sending out some of the more familiar names that you're aware of, some veteran players, and bringing in some either some prospects or some draft picks down the road. Basically, Boyd, because I suppose this team got too old, and we saw how successful the forced youth movement was last year, if you will. And I think um, it was good on David Poyle to recognize that and, and to build the team in that direction. Yeah, I think it might have been, you know, maybe a year too late in, you know, Hindsight being what it is, but the core of the team had had multiple years to try and make good on the the promise that they showed in the summer of 2017, and it just never quite all came together. So, with you know the team getting older, some some larger salaries on the books, and some certainly difficult decisions needing to be made. It was time to make a change, and to your point, credit goes to David Poyle for recognizing where the team was at and making some of the challenging moves, difficult decisions to reshape what the roster looks like. And that all started, so the first shoe to drop came on July 1st of this year, and usually when we think of July 1st, we think of that as free agency day, Canada day all rolled into one. It's almost like Christmas. But this year, July 1st, 
really was on July 8th. That's when free agency opened up. But either way, something significant did happen on July 1st, and it was the Predators trading Victor Arvidsson to the Los Angeles Kings, and they got back in return a 2021 second-round pick and a 2022 third. When you look at Victor Arvidsson, of course, he's a very beloved player, a very rugged player for his size, had a lot of scoring talent. But I think injuries and such kind of derailed his progress. And not to say he had become useless, but I think it was just it was time to move on. Yeah, I would agree. His his contract was coming closer to the end. His production had certainly dropped off a bit with some of the injuries. And as the team needed to change their look, he was one of the players that was probably a little bit easier to move with a lower cap hit and having value on the market. And I think they did well to get a couple of picks for him. His production definitely dropped off. I think when you, you look back, the, the big issue, of course, was the Robert Bertuzzo hit in St. Louis back in the 2020 season. To my knowledge, I think he's still suffering effects from that. But he ended up in the 20 season in 57 games, 15 goals, 13 assists, which was a drop-off from the season prior where he had 34 goals and 14 assists and only one more game played. And then, of course, in the 2021 season, in 50 games, only 10 goals and 15 assists, usually on that first line with Ryan Johansson and Philip Forsberg. So quite a drop-off of production of what we were used to. And then he had no points in only two playoff games. So, yeah, and it was weird in the playoffs. You know, they rolled Victor Arvidsson out there on the ice, and I just like, you know, what can he do right now? He, he's just – he was too hindered and – all he could do basically was be the jump man in front of the net on the power play. Other than that, just wasn't the same player that we've been used to all these years. Yeah, that's exactly right. With with all of the injuries, he made it rob some of his explosiveness would probably be the best way that I would put it. And as a result, he became more of a mm-hmm. perimeter player, not as not as able to make the move on the defenseman blow by people and create those really high danger scoring chances and he he was sort of forced to become an outside player taking a lot of longer range shots lower danger chances and that just kind of really robbed a lot of his a lot of his productivity so we wish victor arvidsson well in his move to los angeles i'm sure he's going to become a fan favorite there and i think we can all agree that even though he's gone in nashville we would still hope that he regains an uptick in his production. He's still very young, so I think he's still got quite a bit of potential. So there was that. And then July 17th, leading up to this offseason, and really leading up to the most recent trade deadline, the rumors were surrounding Matthias Ekholm as he's entering his final season on his contract with the Predators. And it was a matter of, okay, is he going to be traded? Well, they ended up trading Ryan Ellis, to the Philadelphia Flyers. In exchange, they got right-hand defenseman Philip Myers and Nolan Patrick, center, who was drafted second overall in, I believe it was 2017, if I'm not mistaken. But then, immediately, they flipped Patrick to the Vegas Golden Knights for center Cody Glass, which both guys have a lot of upside, but a lot of injury history as well. But nonetheless, boy, this was... A very earth-shattering trade if you were a Predators fan. What did you think of it at the time? I probably had to look at the tweet three times before it really settled in that it was actually the Nashville Predators' Ryan Ellis being traded. 
because I honestly let me make sure it was real. It's from a checkmarked account. Yeah, exactly. I, I'm not even sure I believed it, but that one was tough. I mean, he was such a crucial part of the team on the ice in the locker room, vocal leader. When it came down to it, uh, you know, when Roman Yossi was named captain. If Ryan Ellis hadn't been injured at the time, there's a pretty good chance Ryan Ellis would have been named the captain. So to see him traded just a few years later certainly sent ripples through the Nashville fan base, to say the least. But when the hard decisions have to be made, you have to make the best of them. And for Ryan Ellis to bring back you know, a, a still young defenseman in Philippe Myers, who has a lot of capability, and then also to bring back Cody Glass, a former number six overall pick who has a tremendous amount of talent, a good bit of size, great hands, could really be one of those anchors down the middle for the Predators for years to come. You have to look at that as really setting the stage for where this Predators team could go in the future. And this move became necessary one because Ryan Ellis is 30 years old. And like you said, he, he brings almost a captain-like presence. But to that degree, it's been sort of his detriment for, for playing such a hard style at his size. And I think possibly we're starting to see him break down a bit. The past two seasons have been abbreviated due to injuries. Now, he can't control whether or not he's going to get brained in the Winter Classic by Corey Perry. But still... You think back to the 2017 Stanley Cup Final and and him requiring knee surgery not long after that, and you couple that with him having six years left on his contract at $6.25 million. That's going to take him through age 36, maybe you know early stages of age 37. And you're trying to rebuild this team, again, as David Poyle said, a competitive rebuild. So you replace Ellis with another right-hand defenseman. And then, of course, Nashville has always had trouble at the center spot, so you bring in a guy with lots of potential like Cody Glass. So really, you address two issues at the same time, Boyd. Yeah, that's exactly right. And with Philippe Myers, they get a defenseman who has a ton of size. I mean, he's 6'4", north of 210 pounds. Now you match him up with someone like Matthias Ekholm, and either you have one really big shutdown pair or two different pairs where you can now add a a real shutdown player and allow some of the more offensively minded defensemen like a Roman Yossi, like an Alex Carrier, or from the younger side, someone like a David Ference, more freedom to roam and play the type of game that makes them successful. Looking at Cody Glass, I I was scrolling through Cap Friendly and he was actually listed as a non-roster prospect, but I would think he's definitely going to get a chance in that middle six at center. And again, he's, he's another guy that's kind of been up and down, but he has battled quite a number of injuries. Last year, he played 27 games for the Vegas Golden Knights, had four goals, six assists for 10 points, only participated in one playoff game and was a minus one. He also had the same statistics in 14 games, four goals, six assists for 10 points in the AHL with the Henderson Silver Knights. Boyd, what do you think of, of Cody Glass? Again, this is a guy that was drafted very high. I believe he was also a 2017 draft pick. High in the first round, sixth overall. And there is loads of potential there. And you look at the center position where the Predators are. 
this is sort of, I suppose, well, I was going to say low risk, but there was quite a lot of risk associated with it, but it still has potential for high, for high reward. What do you think of the possible short-term and long-term success of Cody Glass? Well, he, I mean, he's, he's shown he can come in and create some production. I mean, certainly limited opportunities with a very, very good Vegas team. But his former coach, Peter DeBoer, in an interview earlier this summer, spoke incredibly highly of his talent, his capability with the puck, his capability to pass and shoot and make plays, almost hearkening to a younger version of a player currently on the roster in Ryan Johansson. Because Cody Glass does have some size. I mean, he's not a smaller center. He's a bigger guy who can really fill that center of the ice pivot role. And if he can stay healthy and continue to move forward, there's a lot of potential for what he could be both, say, this upcoming year in a third, second line center role, depending on how the roster shakes out. But you really have to consider him as a first line or second line center for the next five to seven years to come. Or at least, yeah, at least having the potential for doing so. And as you mentioned, his size, he is listed 6'2", 192 pounds. And there was a lot made from Vegas over the postseason of their center depth breaking down when Chandler Stevenson was out of the lineup and then we had guys like Alex Tuck and Nikola Waugh. And even with that, I guess still Cody Glass just wasn't quite a fit with Vegas. But as you mentioned, DeBoer still spoke highly of him. And, and so just because he didn't work out in Vegas doesn't mean he can't work out in Nashville. That's exactly right. So we had that, and again, just kind of moving along with the youth movement, there was a lot made last year of the Predators returning to, well, as this podcast suggests, the Predator way, which was something that we hadn't seen quite a while, really since Peter LaViolette was the coach, or well, since Peter LaViolette took over. It was something more prevalent during the Barry Trotz era of this very rugged, hard-to-play-against defensive team that scores by committee. And so you saw a little bit of that last year with the forced youth movement with all the injuries and all the guys coming up from the AHL and somehow their record drastically improving after that. And it looks like that was reflected in their draft decisions this year. So they started up with the 19th overall pick in this year's draft, and they ended up selecting Fedor Svechkov from Russia. And then they traded... They had two second-round picks, one of them from the Arvidsson trade. They traded their 41st, uh, sorry, 40th and 51st overall picks to Carolina and moved up to 27th to select Zachary LaRue. So both these guys are forwards. Both these guys are, are known to be that physical, hard-to-play-against guy, especially LaRue. I want to get your thoughts on Svechkov, Boyd, because I saw highlights of him you know, as the draft was going on, and he's really been touted for his puck-handling abilities but more so the defensive side of the game. They think that that's where his strong suit is going to be. He's going to be more of a defensive, possible second-line centerman. But I don't know. If you can carry the puck on a string, I think you are you have potential for more of that. And he's been drawing comparisons possibly to Joel Erickson Eck of the Minnesota Wild. But what are your thoughts on Fedor Svechkov and his potential with Nashville? Yeah, I think he's got... A great potential. I think a lot is made of his defensive game. I think a, a lot because he's very advanced in that area for his age. Usually you see younger players focusing more on the offensive side and that 200-foot game comes later. 
and he's very advanced at that for his age. His hockey sense, his sense of defense is very strong. And I think as a result, people tend to sleep on his offensive capability that may not be as flashy as some of the players who went above him. But as you said, he's he's a very strong puck handler. He's very good with making space, finding space for his teammates, making plays. He's got a solid shot. If if those things continue to progress, I mean, he could most certainly fill a second-line center role for years and years as a plus-level scorer and defensive stalwart, face-off wizard, penalty killer, chips in on the power play. You know, that's an incredibly valuable player to have. So you have Svechkov, and then, like I mentioned, the Predators moved up with two second-round picks to move up to 27th and draft Zachary LaRue, which... I think is another guy that some think poses a flight risk and at the same time has high potential if he can kind of get a hold, I suppose, get a hold of his temper. There's a lot made of his physicality, but there's also quite a bit of skill to him. The highest mark, I don't remember who this came from, but they said at his highest potential, he could be another Brad Marchand type player, which is, you know, it's huge. Brad Marchand's deep into his 30s, and he's still producing a ton of points for the Bruins. And this guy's a very entertaining type, too. He plays for the Halifax Mooseheads and the QMJHL. He wears number 66. Apparently, he was kicked out of multiple games last year, once including flipping off the fans. I suppose, you know, you, you look back in Nashville's history, you look back at guys like Jordan Tutu. There was a lot made about this guy going into rookie camp, Boyd. Zachary LaRue, I, I think, had a lot of eyeballs on him when he was skating around. What do you think about uh, about LaRue? I think you're exactly right. He is he is the type of player that draws eyeballs to him. He makes plays, plays with a lot of passion and ferocity on the ice, which can create a lot of good things for the team. And as you said, he's a very skilled player. In the QMJHL this past year, uh, he was he was over a, a point per game, which, you know, that's that right kind of progression you want to see. He was just under a point per game as a 17-year-old. He's over a point per game as an 18-year-old. So now coming into this next year, you know, you're really looking for him to take that next big leap and show a truly dominant player in the same vein we saw with Philip Tomasino, who had a solid year leading up to his draft year and then went out and scored 100 points the following season. That's sort of the same path you want to see for Zachary LaRue. And as, as far as some of the character concerns, I guess, one thing to keep in mind is these are all on-ice incidents. So as a result, you can pretty good chance you can chalk them up to immaturity. There doesn't seem to be any concerns about his behavior or maturity or ability to be a teammate off the ice. The players that he was around during the post-draft development camp, you know, all kind of spoke very highly of just being around him, what he was like to be around as a person. So you look at that as an opportunity to take that ferocity, intensity, and drive and really channel that into the things that create positive outcomes on the ice and not so much the losing control and creating some fairly negative outcomes. That is a great point about how he handles himself. You're right, yeah, if this was some stuff off the ice, legal issues, then, you know, that's not exactly a coachable issue. That's a very deep personal issue, and that's something that's very hard to work out and we've seen that a time or two in Nashville. Uh, I'm not going to name names but I think a few guys come to mind including a couple of top end picks 
we're going to talk about camp battles here in a little bit, but do you think, and this is a wild suggestion, I don't think it's possible, but do you think he could surprise and make the Preds out of camp? I think it's pretty unlikely, just given the number mm-hmm. of players that would be ahead of him in the process. He would have to leapfrog probably seven or eight players at this point, which is really hard to do at his age. So while on, on one hand, you'd love to see it from the perspective of you want to see high draft picks come out and perform right away and, and, and show what they're capable of and make an impact. But at this point, the better scenario for him is probably another year in juniors, spend another year getting faster, stronger, and just proving that ability to dominate and then looking for that that next step forward in 2022 as far as really trying to make the Predators roster. So we had that, and then we, of course we brought up free agency day, so that's where we're going to go next. Lots of talk going into free agency. The Predators couldn't quite stand pat and do nothing. Of course, they're going for this this rebuild and, and bringing up players from the AHL, from juniors. But there were some holes to be plugged in, and there were rumors abound that they were going to sign a guy like Gabriel Landeskog, who ended up signing, I believe, it was seven years, maybe eight years, $7 million per season at age 28. So... That was out the door. So then there were rumors going in, well, the Preds are very close to bringing back Mikhail Granlund and Eric Halla, bringing them both back, which I can understand with Granlund. Halla, eh, I could really wouldn't have cared either way. But then you hear, hear in the moments leading up to free agency opening back up that talks between Granlund, his agent, and GM David Poyle have fallen apart. There's nothing to be had here. Nothing's going to happen. And then lo and behold, boom, like, Half an hour later, he signs for four years, $5 million per season. Now, Boyd, I know Granlin has really come into the Predators' system, I think especially under John Hines, and become a very dependable second-line center. But you look at his age, 29, you look at his production. Again, it has improved over the last season and a half, but that's still a pretty hefty price tag for Granlin. Am I wrong? Well, he's, he's still making less than what he was at the end of his time with Minnesota when, when he was traded to Nashville. And yeah, you would like for the $5 million price tag for his offensive output to be higher. And I think with, again, with a a full training camp, some new line mates that maybe have a little bit higher skill level than what he was at times playing with previously, there's a real opportunity for him to make a jump forward back to the mid-60s point player that he was in Minnesota. But it's it's not to be lost that with John Hines, Michael Granlund has played the most minutes of any forward. He has had the highest average time on ice of any forward. So John Hines trusts him quite literally more than anybody else. And with that being the case, I mean, there was a lot of logic to bringing him back. From, from a contract perspective, is it a year too long and half a million too much per year? Maybe. But when there's a player that means a lot to your organization and is a crucial part of your lineup, you do what you have to do to keep that player. It's, it's sort of like stick with what you know. And he, you're right, he's a very dependable guy, and you're going to see possibly a guy like... Philip Tomasino jump in and, and line up next to him. And it wasn't that long ago that he was on that line with Matthew Shane and Philip Forsberg, and they were lighting up the world, and that was reflected in his 2020 stats. He had 17 goals, 13 assists, and 63 games. And in 12 fewer games last year, he only had three less points. So 
I guess his overall footprint with the team drastically improved. Also in six playoff games, two goals, three assists for five points. So, you know, there was just a little bit of security in bringing back Granlund. So, yeah, I mean, a bit of a hefty price tag, but again, you know what you're getting with Granlund. You're not guessing going off into the market and reaching somewhere else. So there was that. And then the Predators also brought in, now with the retirement of Pecorine, which we haven't even mentioned that. You know, obviously a fan favorite for many years, but a big hold there. Were you surprised they brought in David Riddick at one year, 1.25, instead of possibly bringing up Connor Ingram, who we've been talking about for the last couple of years? What were your thoughts on, on that signing? I really wasn't surprised at all. I, I, I figured they would go out and get some type of veteran backup. Connor Ingram has has done very well at the AHL level, but really probably needs a full season as the guy in the AHL to really round out his game, prove that he can do it night in and night out, and then have an opportunity in 2022 to be elevated to that spot. Or even later in 21, depending on where the Predators are, and if there's another team that might look to acquire David Riddich, I think Riddich is perfectly fine as a backup for Saros. You assume he, he knew what he was getting into signing with Nashville. Saros is the guy. But at the same time, Saros has never had a 60-game workload. So for someone like Riddich, he probably has a pretty good understanding. He's going to play 18 to 25 games this upcoming season. And that gives him an opportunity to show what he can do once again, and perhaps after this season, have an opportunity to look for a starting role somewhere else in the league. And he definitely has that potential. He was a 1A, 1B guy in Calgary, and I think one thing that rattled his confidence was actually the last Predators game I attended, the quote-unquote hockey is fun game, where Mikhail Gramlin scored on him in the dying seconds regulation and then in, again in overtime. Uh, didn't quite seem to be the same guy after that. That was a guy that I had penciled in as the starter for Czech Republic in the Olympics at one point. So it's going to be interesting seeing him as the backup. Again, to your point, I think Sars is going to play a bunch of games, and Riddick is capable of taking half the season. So I guess this is going to be a bounce-back year for Riddick, but in quite a limited role. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens there. But nonetheless, you know you're, you've got a pretty solid goaltending tandem. It's about as solid as it gets in the NHL, if we're being, if we're being honest. So there's that, and then we had a boatload of RFAs to look at for the Predators going into the summer. Uh, lots of big names in there, the biggest of which was Yusei Saros, who, if I'm not mistaken, was supposed to go to salary arbitration, but the Predators settled at what I thought was right on the nose, because you've got Yaroslav Oskarov, who was the first-round pick from last year, coming up from Russia probably in the next three to four years, and Saros emerging as the number one goaltender. So the Predators go with a four-year deal at $5 million per season. And again, Boyd, there was a lot of scuttlebutt about what the numbers were going to be, but I thought this was just dead on what it was supposed to be. Completely agree. I think they, they came to the right contract for where the Predators are, where Saros is, what lies in the future for the Predators. It really gives Saros the chance to be the guy for the next few years if Askarov is as advertised and he comes in as the next Martin Brodeur, then Saros becomes a free agent at the age of 30 and still has a chance to go sign an even bigger contract somewhere else. So I, I think it's a great situation for all involved. And it was just 
great to see everyone sort of reach that appropriate salary, appropriate number of years. Everybody seems to understand where both Saros's value to the Predators franchise, which is significant to say the least, but also kind of understanding where the road ahead lies and where that leads and putting everybody in the best possible scenario to move forward down the road. So he got locked down and it's kind of that uh, fallout meme. Everyone liked that. So Saros was locked up four years, five million. And then there were, like I mentioned, many other RFAs to take care of. Matthew Olivier, two years, 750000 per season. Rem Pitlick, one year, nine hundred seventeen grand. Tanner Janot, two years, one-way contract, 800000 per season. Dante Fabro at two years, $2.4 million per year. And then Ellie Tolvanen at three years, $1.45 million. Boyd, who were some of the, the names, some of the contracts that stuck out most to you? More than any individual contract, I think... It was David Poyle getting the work done, not letting any of these these situations drag out, not getting pulled into a bad contract negotiation. He got all of the RFAs locked up, signed, ready to go. Nobody's hanging out there as rookie camps approaching, especially, I, mean, I would say, the biggest worry outside of Saros was probably Ellie Tolvanen. What do you gauge for mm-hmm. a 21-year-old forward who came in, scored 11 goals in relatively limited action, really started to show what kind of player he's capable of. And when you get to that point, what does the contract ask become? And I think it was great that the work got done, the contracts got signed, everybody's in the right level for where they're at, and it just sets things up for the next couple of years for this youth movement to continue and for the Predators to have the opportunity to figure out what direction they really want to go kind of 2022 and beyond. And to your point with Poyle getting everyone taken care of, they avoided arbitration with both Saros and Fabro. Now, we'll just touch on this just a little bit more and then we'll move on. I thought the Fabro annual value was a little bit high and then on Tolvanen I thought it was a little bit low. Again, two years, $2.4 million per season for Fabro. Three years, $1.45 for Tolvanen. What are your thoughts as far as that goes in particular? Yeah, I, I think they paid a little bit more for Fabro to keep it at two years and probably gave Tolvanen an extra year to keep the AAV down a little bit. I would agree Fabro is maybe a little bit higher than I was expecting, but he is a still young right-handed defenseman who has played a pretty good number of games the last couple of years after coming straight out of college. So those players don't come for free, and you have to do what you need to do to keep those talented players in the system and on the ice. And only going two years, though, it, it gives a pretty definitive timeline for Fabro's future in Nashville to say he's got that time to really figure it out. And if not, then there's kind of an end line for where the Predators might move on. Oh, gosh. I was looking at his stats, and there's been a lot that's been made of him because he pretty much was the return. Now, he wasn't part of the, of the deal, but he basically was the return for the Subban trade. He was moved up to fill the Subban spot vacated alongside Matias Sackholm. 
But look at his stats from last year. 40 games played, 2 goals, 10 assists, minus 1. Depends on how you feel about that statistic. But I forgot, they did not play him in a single game in the playoffs. Uh, a little bit shocking, a little bit striking for a guy that has potential and the Preds, I would think, look very high upon. Yeah, there. I mean, there were certainly injuries, which was a part of it. He missed a whole bunch of time. And in the time that he was out, and, and this was the case for a couple of different players on the Predators roster, when he was out, other players stepped forward. And when the Predators were on that, I think it was 27-1 and run to make it into a playoff spot. At a certain point, you can't mess with what's working. And with Alex Carrier playing big minutes, Matt Benning playing big minutes, Eric Goodbranson was amazingly still on the ice. When I was going to say, you're, what's working, you had Harper and Goodbranson on a pair for a few games in that <laughs> playoff run. So, I don't know. Maybe it was worth throwing Fabro in there. <laughs> I mean, it, maybe they were just there to By the way, Harper Ab- was another re-signing. Oh, hey. Um, you know, maybe they were just there to provide ad- abject terror to the fan base because that's pretty much what they did on a night-in, night-out basis. You know, mission accomplished. So we talked about last year's playoffs, and John Hines, this is kind of shocking because he's been around since January of 2020, but this is actually his first full training camp he's going to have with the Nashville Predators, and it's kind of been shown. His teams have sort of struggled to come along, and I think he's had a hard time connecting with veteran players. He had a very brief training camp leading into the bubble, in the 2020 playoffs. We know how that went. And then a very short training camp going into the abbreviated season last year. So, again, this is his first full camp. Boy, what are we thinking here? Because, again, it seems like he had a hard time getting the veteran players to buy in, but the younger players seemed to get his system right away. And when there were more younger players in the lineup, the team's record improved. What do you think as far as him finally having that full training camp? Does he finally get buy-in from the entirety of the roster? It will be really interesting to see, honestly. From that abbreviated camp that he had leading into the 2021 season, I recall vividly a lot of the reports coming out of just really stripping it down and getting down to basics and just working on fundamentals and driving in those fundamentals over and over and over and he wasn't hesitant to let the players know when they were not living up to his expectations so I I think what we'll see especially with a younger roster is a lot of that high intensity fundamental focus really trying to build that that teamwork team atmosphere and that's really what worked at the end of last season where they went on that run to make it to a playoff spot. It was almost out of nowhere, the team just clicked and everybody started playing for the team. And it, it really felt like the Nashville Predators under you know sort of the last few years of Barry Trotz, where it was all team game, all hard work, hard-nosed, 
where I think that might be interesting and where John Hines is going to have to figure that out and maybe in a way that Peter Laviolette never quite did is how do you maintain that that attitude and that drive while allowing some of these very skilled players to be the best that they can be? There is a need for Roman Yossi and Philip yeah. Forsberg and Matt Duchesne and Ryan Johansson and some of these younger players as well who have such high skill levels. How do you enhance them and put them in the right positions where they can produce at the level that they should be? And I think a lot of Predators fans still, even after all this time, just still don't quite know much about John Hines, about who he is, some of you know what he stands for. He's still kind of an enigma. We don't really know sometimes what he's thinking on a night-in, night-out basis. Of course, we knew Laviolette right away was a very had sort of a fun two-way style to his coaching. What would you say to the fans out there who might not know what John Hines' coaching style is? Yeah, I, I think his coaching style is not too dissimilar from Laviolette in the fact that he wants to play high pace, mm-hmm. but with a different focus, where Laviolette was all about controlling the puck, possessing the puck for as long as you have to, and then just shots, all the shots. Wherever they come from, it doesn't matter. Any shot is a good shot. John Hines has really tried to emphasize on danger over volume in terms of trying to get to the right places where goals are scored, to the net front, in the slot, in those kind of low on the dot areas, and really trying to create that chaos in front of the net. That is how a lot of goals are scored. And the successes from certain players towards the end of the season, i.e. Tanner Janot, really highlight where some of the players started to buy into that and really started to drive that philosophy forward. The question really becomes, how do you put, again, some of these more veteran, higher skilled players into those positions to make those plays? Thank you for bringing up Tanner Janot because I missed a big point when we were recapping the offseason moves. What did you think of the Predators protecting Tanner Janot as one of three forwards? Of course, they protected five defensemen as well. But they protected Janot over Callie Yarncroke, who was subsequently selected by the Seattle Kraken. This is the first pick, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, with the first pick, we're going with the boy boy Callie, though. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> yup, Callie Yarncroke. Callie Yarncroke. He's projected to be their second-line center. And another scoring presence from last year's team where I can't remember if he finished the team leading in scoring, but he was pretty dang close from what I remember. Yeah, your, your thoughts on the Preds protecting Janot over Yarncroke? Honestly, not that surprised. I mean, if the Predators are going young, they're looking to move towards the future. Kelly Yarncroke's a nice player. He does a lot of good things on the ice, but we pretty much know what he is. He's a middle six center winger who's going to score 12 to 17 goals and rack up about 35 points. And while that's that's a very useful player to have, the Predators have other players in the pipeline coming up that simply just have a higher ceiling. And truly, Tanner Janot might not be that player directly, so it's, it's maybe not a direct link there. But if the Predators got the inkling that if Tanner Janot was exposed, Seattle might take him. At this point, that's sort of the choice you have to make to protect someone who was so impactful down the stretch 
and is still very young versus a veteran player. He came out of nowhere and and was Mm -hmm. just a workhorse. He was a force of nature. Some of the hits he was laying on people and just the impact that he was creating game to game and in some cases shift to shift was really incredible to see. And when you're looking towards the future, sometimes you just have to make that choice of maybe we don't know exactly what Tanner Janot is, but if we're going young, we have to go young. And it means protecting Tanner Janot over Cal Yonkroak at 30 years old with one year left on his contract. And as we look at it too, I was, I was looking at the numbers, Cal Yonkroak is 29 years old. So to me, this whole time he was somewhat expendable. He never quite found that that consistency in the Predators lineup. Again, he really started to improve his numbers over last year. You hate to lose a guy like that for nothing, but at the same time, everyone had to this year. So I just wanted, I, I kind of drew the connection between Janot and Yarncroke just because that's how a lot of fans took it this summer. Now, I'm very much in agreement with you about how it all ended up, but I just wanted to get your thoughts as far as, as that goes. So we look at, we're going to get into the opening night lineup here in just a second. What you and I both think opening night lineup is going to be. I'm actually going to give you two lineups who I think is going to do it and who I think should uh, be in the lineup. But you put on here on a, on a rundown that Elliot Friedman mentioned a few weeks ago that he thought the Predators offseason was incomplete. I disagree with that. I think they're set. They're going to see what happens here. They're going to roll with the youth movement and, and see where the cards lie. What do you think as far as that goes? With the Predators going into training camp, at, at, at this point, yeah, I would agree. They're they're going to roll with what this roster is here for the next few weeks and, and probably the next few months. Where I think Elliot Freeman's point, maybe more macro-level lies, is the work isn't done. So there are still some major decisions to be made. Ryan Johansson and Matt Duchesne, two significant contracts. Do those players make a step forward this season and get back to what... We sort of know they are capable of being and either cement their spot on the roster or increase their value in a trade scenario. And then pretty big decisions lie around Matthias Ekholm and Philip Forsberg. David Poyle has said repeatedly publicly that he intends to extend both, but the longer that drags on, the more that question is going to start to weigh of, is that what those players want? And at a certain point, if some of these younger players start to step up and produce, is it the right decision to give those players large, long contracts that they are certainly worth and certainly would receive on the open market if they were to get there? So where I really think the case is for the comments from Elliot Friedman is just that it's still a team in transition and the work isn't done. And... I always wonder, too, someone like him looking from the outside who may not have as much familiarity with, with some of the prospects coming up. I could see someone, a national rider, thinking, looking at the roster going into the season, like, wait, don't they need to do this and, and this? But uh, and, and we're going to get to that in just a second, what we think the, the lineup is going to be. I'm glad you brought up the potential of re-signing Forsberg and Ekholm before next off season. Predators go into this season with $11.2 million of cap space. And as we mentioned, Philip Forsberg, $6 million for this season in the last year's contract. Matthias Ekholm at 3.75. What a steal for him. And if 11.2 is not going to cut it. That's not going to be enough space to re-sign Forsberg and Ekholm. And the only guys coming off the books 
Next offseason are Rocco Grimaldi, Nick Cousins, Mark Borvietsky, Matthew Benning, Ben Harper, David Riddick. And you're going to have to do something with the backup goaltender position. So you look at a guy, Mark Borvietsky, $2 million, Rocco Grimaldi, another $2 million, Cousins, $1.5. That opens up a little bit of cap space if you want to do that, but maybe not as much. And there's still there's not very much wiggle room there. Yeah, that's exactly right. There's again, there's there's still work to be done. And if the Predators are going to commit big money long term to Eckholman Forsberg, they better have a way out on one or both of Duchesne and Johansson. And they're both very likable guys. I you know, I, I enjoy watching them play. I I want them to find their game and do it in Nashville. But at a certain point with the players that are coming up and the decisions that have to be made something's going to have to be done in regards to those contracts. If only Forsberg could just lock it down and be more consistent. He's not a superstar, and I don't think he has quite superstar potential, but he's still a big piece for the Priors, so it's going to be interesting to see what happens with him going forward. Let's go ahead and jump into it. We're going to get into what we think is going to be our the opening night lineup for the Predators, and we can get into Camp Battles 2 as part of that as well. Boyd, I want you to go ahead right off the top. Just give me your what you think is going to be the opening night lineup for the Nashville Predators. All right. Um, to run it down from, from the forwards' perspective, I think they, they saw enough potential in the Forsberg-Johansson-Duchesne line that that is, that is probably the top line. The second line will probably, at least for the opening night, will be Granlund, Tolvanen, and Luke Cunnan. Granlund and Cunnan certainly showed some great chemistry together, really were an impactful impactful line down the stretch. So I think John Hines will give that another opportunity. Tolvanen fits in well there as the shooter to the playmaker and the, the more of the power forward presence of, of Luke Cunnan. The third line is is man, where it starts to get interesting. Because I think you probably see Cody Glass get the first chance at centering the third line, but there are a lot of choices once you get to those two wingers and what do you do at those spots. Do you go the the veteran route with Rocco Grimaldi and Nick Cousins? Do you give the opportunity to someone like Philip Tomasino? or Rem Pitlick coming up from the younger group. My guess would be at the end of the day, the opening night lineup will probably have Cody Glass centering Philip Tomasino and Nick Cousins. The fourth line is honestly probably the easiest one, Trennan, Sissons, and Janot. They were that good, and they will probably take the opening face-off opening night. From the defensive core... And then... It, yeah, and then uh, well, I was going to say, who do you have as your extra forward? Rocco Grimaldi will be an extra, and my guess is probably Rem Pitlick is the other extra forward. Oh, the, no uh, no Matthew Olivier? I, I think at the end of the day, Pitlick has enough skill, he probably beats out Olivier. Olivier might actually start the year in the AHL, just because he's such a similar player to Tanner Janot, where... Ren Pitlick has a little more lineup flexibility where he can play center, he can play wing, 
and he can play anywhere in really the second, third, or fourth line as needed as a faster, more skilled player. On the defensive side, I would say Yossi and Carrier are probably the top line. By the way, it's hilarious that Cat Friendly lists Alexander Carrier as a non-roster player. <laughs> he's almost 100% a lock to make the roster. The second pair, I think, will be Ekholm and Dante Fabro. I think Fabro is going to get another chance to play with Ekholm. All the reports that I've heard that he's had a really good offseason. He's, he's gotten well, gotten healthy. He's skating well, working hard. My third pair, end of the day, gun to my head, I think is probably David Ference and Philippe Myers. There are a, a, a number of veterans there, and Mark Borwiecki, Matt Benning, Ben Harper, really, at this point. But the, the capability and potential of Ference and Myers will probably win those spots at the end of the day. And then, of course, the very easy parts of the lineup are Soros and Rick right. in, in the, between the pipes. So, for my opening li- night lineup, it's very similar to yours, but there are a few different discrepancies. So, I'll try to run it down real quick. My first line, I've got Forsberg, Johansson, and Tolvanen. A line that showed quite a bit of success last year. It's just a matter of whether or not Tolvanen can finally lock it down and be more consistent 5-on-5. Five five. This is really going to be his prove-it season. But I do like the possibility of Duchesne being on that first line, too. I can't exactly count that out. And it is kind of funny having your two most expensive guys that take up, I think, 19% of the cap on the same line if you do that. (laughs) But I've got Forsberg, Johansson, Tolvin in first line. Second line, I have Duchesne and Granlin because those two showed quite a bit of potential, too. And then that is where I put Philip Tomasino. On the right wing. I think no matter what, I don't think there's a scenario in which Tomasino does not make the opening night roster. He would have to get injured in training camp uh, for him to not make the roster. He, if I believe, if I'm not mistaken, I believe he had 32 points in 29 AHL games last year. I had that tab open, but I can't find it. But I believe that's what it was. So he's clearly shown that yeah, he's ready to go. That's, he's ready that's to pretty good to be, to be over a point per game in the AHL at 19 years old. Absolutely. So I think he's ready to go. Third line, I've got Cousins, Glass, and Cunning. Now, I'm like you. I think Cunning does have some second-line potential, but at the same time, you give someone for Glass to play with. So he's pretty good middle six winger. Glass may or may not have first-line potential, but you know he's going to solidly sit, sit up there in the middle six forwards. Then here's my fourth line. I have Trennan. Sissons, Janot, and then I actually have Olivier as my extra forward, and Grimaldi, uh, I don't know. I guess maybe a trade, maybe something like that, which which stinks because I do like Rocco Grimaldi, and when he comes in the lineup, sometimes he, he does some, some dazzling things, but he's another guy that I don't think quite found the consistency, and he's not getting any younger. Oh, I'm, I'm entirely with you. I would now, not be surprised if by December neither Cousins nor Grimaldi were on the roster. Well, and that's what I'm getting into here. So there's the lineup that I think is going to be. Here's the lineup that I think should be, and it's the same with the exception of no Nick Cousins. I would trade Nick Cousins, and I would trade him to a contending team. You know, I mean, he's, he's still a pretty useful player, but if you recall, I had a pretty big rant on Twitter not too long ago about the Predators having outgrown the need for him. 
The only reason they brought him in was because of the abbreviated season, the COVID concerns, and the taxi squad. You needed to bulk up the veteran presence while they signed guys like Cousins and Halla and Granlin at the 11th hour. As we mentioned before, one year left at $1.5 million. Again, I think the Predators could, could move on from yeah. him. So that third line, now this is where I put my cojones on the table and say that your third line should be Trennan, Glass, and Cunning. And the reason I say that is because Yakov Trennan, when he first came to the Predators, was billed as this rugged, skilled player. And this has kind of happened in recent years to some guys that have shown potential that they get relegated to being more of a physical fourth-line guy. I think of Mika Salamaki as the prime example of that. But the hole is open for a guy like Yakov Trenin to get into a higher part of the lineup and show his skill, which he has shown before. You think of that highlight reel through the legs goal against Detroit. <laughs> that comes to mind. Nice move oh. tight. What a goal. Oh, my God. What a what play. What a play by Trennan. Wow. Through his legs and a backhander high inside the post. Twice this season, Nashville has seven against Detroit. Look at this move by this big kid with the long, rangy reach. I've, I've watched that highlight so, so many times. I'm, it was so pretty. The play that possibly ended Danny DeKaiser's career. <laughs> but... I think Trenton's got third-line potential. I don't hear anybody saying that, and maybe I'm just being a fool, but I don't think I'm too far off. So then that would change that fourth line to Janot on the left wing, which I'm sure he could play either wing and he wouldn't complain. Sissons, and then I think Olivier does have what it takes to be a regular fourth-line player in the league. He brings a ton of energy to the team. So that wraps up the forwards, which that should line up would uh, allow Grimaldi to be the extra forward. So moving to the defense... Yossi Carrier, and along with your point on how he's listed on Cat Friendly, he's also, I think he's below maybe 73, 74 overall on NHL 21. So I would hope he gets quite a ratings bump going into NHL 22 because, well, I mean, that's just where he is. And I hope he doesn't become Jonathan Blum 2.0 because they put a lot of faith in this guy. So there's Carrier along with Yossi on the first pair. Second pair. I'm just like you. I've got Ekholm and Fabro. Stick with what you know. Let's see where Myers is. He does have second pair potential, but I think you slot Myers down to the third pair. And then on his left, I have question mark, question mark, question mark, because you have four options on that third pair lefty slot. You have a choice between Ference, or Harper, or Borvietsky, or Davies. And... I agree with you. I think Ference is the fit on that spot. He's young, he's fast, he's skilled, and if you're going to go with a guy that has some two-way play and can provide some offense to Philip Myers, you don't need to line a stone-handed, stay-at-home type defenseman alongside like Harper or Borvietsky would present. I think that's just going to slow him down, and I mean... At the end of the day, you traded Ryan Ellis for this guy. So you need him to play at his full potential. So Ference and Myers is my third pair. And, of course, Saros and Reddick in between the pipes. Any other thoughts as far as far as the opening night lineup is concerned? I think we kind of covered everything there. Putting Jakob Trennan in a higher role is basically speaking my love language. So I'm, I'm, I'm all for that. I love the skill and size that he has. And I, and I do hope he gets those opportunities going forward. 
but I'm at least happy to see that he has solidified himself in the lineup. And even if he does get stuck on the fourth line, he's still going to be lined up with guys like Colton Sissons and Tanner Janot, which in effect is almost a poor man's third line. So regardless, like you say, Trennan is still going to be a part of the lineup, I think, and I could still bring a lot to the table. All right, so we're going to move on to a segment that I stole basically from one of the Dale Jr. podcasts called Door Bumper Clear, and it's a podcast with Dale Jr.'s former spotter, TJ Majors, and he has a few of his other spotter friends. So they have a segment, and we'll try to roll through this quickly. It's a segment called Spot On, Spot Off, where we take a list of topics from around the NHL, and you let me know if, if what happened was spot on or spot off. So we started off with Jack Eichel, the Buffalo Sabres, Vladimir Tarasenko from the St. Louis Blues. Both individually have asked for trades from their teams, both really similar situations with the Sabres refusing to give Jack Eichel the next surgery he wants slash needs, in my opinion, and the Blues having multiple shoulder surgeries on Tarasenko and the shoulder damage still not quite being fully repaired. So they've both asked for trades from their teams, both significant players, and it's gone on for months now, and no trade has taken place. So, Boyd, spot on, spot off. I'm going to split them up a little bit. For the Sabres, I'll say spot on. They need to try to maximize value for Eichel. And if it means they need to wait till he's healthy, they need to wait till it's in the season, they need to wait till the trade deadline... Certainly you don't want a distraction, but they're going to stink anyway, so what's the difference? And you might as well see if you can create a market where you can actually get a reasonable return. With Tarasenko and the Blues, I'll say spot off. They are a team that still views themselves as a contender. They still have a pretty veteran-laden lineup. They actually don't need this distraction going into the season. And if they can find a relevant return, even if it's not the most optimal, they need to make that move and be able to enter camp and enter the season with kind of a clear path forward without distraction. I say spot on for Eichel and Tarasenko both asking for trades as it seems like both their teams are not exactly taking care of them and their health needs and their situations are deteriorating around them. Buffalo can't keep an NHL roster together, and the Blues haven't depended as much on Tarasenko for leadership as they named Ryan O'Reilly the captain. I'm also going to say spot off for the Blues to the Blues for, and maybe it's not their fault, maybe it's not the doctor's fault, maybe you know they did the best they could, but the surgeries didn't get the intended results, and he's still keeping around some lingering shoulder damage, and definitely a huge spot off to the Sabres. For not allowing Jack Eichel the surgery that he wants. And honestly, if you go back and listen to the 31 Thoughts episode where they have the doctor that Eichel wants to perform the surgery on him, there's two options. There is a disc replacement surgery, which, I mean, is risky as all get out, but it allows for more mobility in the neck, and it actually has a very short recovery time. But the Sabres are pushing for the fusion surgery, which fuses the two discs together and doesn't allow for much mobility in the neck, which I don't know if you've ever played hockey or done 
or driven a car or done anything, but you need mobility in your neck. And so I'm completely spot off for the Sabres letting the situation turn out. And I get that the, another thing that's holding these trades back is that both teams are asking for a lot of value. Probably, I would imagine, two significant roster players, two significant prospects, and maybe a first thrown in. And you don't want to be known as the GM that traded Jack Eichel and got nothing in return. But at the same time, you've botched this health situation and forced the hand to lay in front of you the way it is. So I'm kind of spot off all around, especially when it comes to the team perspectives, but spot on for the players for asking for trades out of town. It's going to be interesting. Real quick, give me a team. Who do you think uh, Eichel goes to? End of the day, Eichel probably ends up with either Vegas or the Rangers with the Kings maybe Ooh, being, okay. the, being the third option. I mean, the, the Kings have gone so young, I, I don't actually know if that makes that much sense at the end of the day. But they definitely have the assets to get it done. Vegas is all in every year, so why not? I think it makes all the sense in the world for the Kings to get a guy like him when you have Anze Kopitar and Adrian Kempe on that first line. Kopitar is not going to be around much longer. And you bring in a guy like Eichel, I think that makes a significant change. I think my one and two are Anaheim and L.A. when it comes to landing Eichel. All right, moving on. Spot on, spot off Boyd, Carolina. Oh, boy. They, in an act of revenge against the Montreal Canadiens for signing Sebastian Ajo to an offer sheet a couple off-seasons ago, they sign Yasperi Kakaniemi at 21 years old, sign him to a one-year offer sheet at $6.1 million, and Montreal does not match it. So spot on, spot off. I think it was a great move, honestly. Strip away all the pettiness around it and the social media activity and all of that, which as a fan of the game, I thought was hilarious. But they took the opportunity to target a player who's 21 years old, was a number three overall pick. Maybe, maybe not. He should have gone that high, but a, a, a certainly very talented player and were able to, to get him and bring him in. And more than likely, they're going to sign him for a longer term deal later in the season, after the season, for less than $6 million. So if you've got the cap room, you've got the picks, make the deal and go get a player you want and figure it out later. And you can also just make hockey more fun in the process, then I'm all for it. Yeah, I'm spot on for the offer sheet. I think regardless of revenge, that was a good move. You signed them to a higher AAV for just one year. And a lot of guys have, have caught notice of that and, and think that's going to be the precedent moving forward. We'll see how that goes in the future and whether that may lead to some changes in the CBA down the road. But a very smart deal to land a, a talented player. Montreal, I think, is right up against the cap, so there was no way they were going to be able to make this work. So Carolina brings in a, a young player, and that's another team that's that's a contender once again. Now we can debate their questionable goaltending decisions made in the offseason, but smart move for Carolina. So I'm spot on for them, spot off for how their social media handled it. Uh, I'm not a fan of Kane's social media since all the banner jokes, all the <laughs> tired banner jokes at that. But again, spot on for Carolina signing the deal. And spot on for Montreal not matching because really they just they couldn't. All right, this next one has to deal with the Carolina Hurricanes once again. 
and this is quite controversial. Spot on, spot off, Carolina signs defenseman, 25 years old, Tony D'Angelo to a one-year, $1 million contract. Boyd, spot on, spot off. I mean, spot off. I mean, just because why? Is he a talented hockey player? Sure. He's, he's done some good things offensively, but why bring all of that to your doorstep? It, it doesn't make sense. It's not worth it. So we move on to Calgary, and this is another spot on, spot off. This was a very recent deal. The Calgary Flames signed former Predators Brad Richardson and Eric Goodbranson. To both of them were one-year deals. Brad Richardson, one year at eight hundred thousand. Eric Goodbranson. Now this is shocking. One year at one point nine five million dollars for a guy who, between the Predators and the Senators, in forty-five games played, had four points and was a minus 12 across the season. Made two playoff game appearances at minus one. And again, with with Branson coming in and not exactly providing what you need, I'm not sure why you're paying near $2 million for this guy. And then Brad Richardson is 36 years old. Had a pretty decent start for the Predators, but once again, injuries sideline him to only 17 games. He only had one goal as a Predator and appeared in two playoff games. So, I'm going spot off for both of these signings. I don't think there's really much potential, much good to be had between having signing Richardson and Branson. But what say you, Boyd? Spot on or spot off? Oh, Calgary. Yeah, there's there's really no reason to sign them. Branson is just not good and really hasn't ever been especially for someone being that high of a pick I, I mean I don't have a huge issue with signing Brad Richardson as a as a depth piece I mean he does fine he's, he's not going to hurt the team but as you're trying to re- remain competitive as as Calgary is trying to do I don't understand committing relevant cap dollars to Erica Branson nearly two million dollars to a guy that, sorry, but is quite useless. Spot off there. All right, last but not least, spot on, spot off, NHL returns to its pre-COVID division alignment. Now, of course, this was kind of necessary with Seattle, but I wanted to see what you thought as far as spot on, spot off, Boyd. I'm good with it. I mean, it's it's returning teams largely to their normal rivals, regardless of kind of the level of fun it was having having Carolina as a rival for a season. And it was fun having all the Canadian teams playing each other for a season from just a viewership perspective. But really getting back to sort of the natural geographical rivals makes makes a lot more sense and just sort of makes it feel more normal to the fan base and, and probably to the players as well. So I think it's fine. I'd, I'd go spot on. I'm spot on for it needed to be done. First off, before I get to that, what do you think about Arizona moving to the Central? That's kind of strange from a geographical standpoint. Again, it's just the way that the cards have been laid out. But what are your thoughts about uh, the Arizona Coyotes joining the Central Division? Yeah, I mean, it's the next best option, for lack of a better description. There's no other team in the in the Pacific that makes a lot of sense to join the Central Especially considering you want to keep that Edmonton, Calgary, Vancouver natural rivalry together. 
I, I think it would, it would be a mistake to split them up. That, that's such a good rivalry among those three teams. So really the next best option to come to the Central was Arizona, even if it's not the greatest geographical setup. The West, man, it's strange. So, yeah, I'm spot on again for it needing to happen. Spot off from an entertainment standpoint, though. I did love the reigniting the rivalries with Detroit, Columbus, new rivalries with Tampa and Carolina. I did feel for Minnesota and St. Louis fans, though, as they had to stay up almost every night pretty late to watch their games. And, of course, I did like the uh, Canadian division as well. But it is what it is. All right, so we're pretty close to wrapping things up here. That's it for the hockey portion of the show. We, we kind of like to to get into things that other podcasts tap into as we start to close things out here. So, Boyd, what have you been, uh, we've been watching or, or listening to? Or have you been popping on the Netflix or the old podcast? What, what's, uh, what's entertaining you these yeah, days? Uh, I, for, for me right now, what I'm watching is season 11 of Archer. And actually, I think season twelve of Archer. I might be getting my my numbers oh, wrong, but okay, it, it's it's just fun. It's foul and entertaining, and it's just enjoyable, especially when you know you're kind of stuck at home a lot of the time, not going out too much. It's 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 a good break, and just the casting is fantastic, especially Jessica Walter, rest in peace, as Mallory Archer. She is just phenomenal, and so that's. That's a fun show, and and that's what I've been watching. What about you? I am really... It's kind of surprising to people who know me because I'm so random and crazy, but I really haven't gotten into TV shows much lately. I've been taking care of my dad through the summer, and he loves American Dad, so we've been watching a whole lot of that. As far as what I'm listening to, I mean, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I listen to podcasts more than I do music. Uh, So you've got... Of course, the big ones. Now, of course, I mentioned the Dale Jr. podcast. So you have the Dale Jr. Download and Door Bumper Clear. So that takes care of the racing side of things. And then from the hockey side, of course, you got to do 31 Thoughts, soon to be 32 Thoughts. And then for my money, the best hockey podcast out there is the Steve Dangle podcast. Um, been a follower of Steve since his first year doing LFR, since LFR 28 when the Predators played the Maple Leafs, and the video was titled, Belak That Sniper. <laughs> and I actually got to meet Steve during that 2017 run when he and Adam and Adam Wilde and Jesse Blake came down for the Stanley Cup final. I'm actually part of their Nashville blog. I like to think I have a slight writing credit to his book because I reminded him of the story of when he was at the NHL Awards and a girl came up to him and asked if he was Rod Brandamore's son. <laughs> So, um, I've got all the time in the world for Steve. He's one of the nicest people I've ever met. And I've just loved his work for all these years. I think he and I have very similar uh, personalities and, and senses of humor. And speaking of senses of humor, uh, we'll, we'll close with this. Uh, this is being recorded on September 15th of 2021. Yesterday we lost the late, great Norm MacDonald. Known mainly for his work on Saturday Night Live, but really you could go on YouTube and just get lost in all of his work. Whether it was the Norm MacDonald show, which was that uh, live podcast he did a few years ago, or his many appearances on Letterman and Conan. 
and of course his weekly update bits and him ripping apart O.J. Simpson. Well, it is finally official. Murder is legal in the state of California. Now, Boyd, I'm going to be honest. Pretty much all, all growing up and and through my early adult years, I never thought he was funny. I was like, this guy, what's the deal with Norm Macdonald? Why is he so famous? And then recently in the past couple of years, he's evolved in my mind to the funniest man that ever <laughs> walked the face of the earth. Um, it's it's such a tragedy. And, and it's strange, too, with, with the way that he went out. One of his last appearances was when he was on The View a couple of years ago. And he made references to the R word, and and then he was supposed to be on Jimmy Fallon after that, and they canceled his appearance, and then we really didn't see much of him after that. And there were whispers that he was going through some health struggles, and lo and behold, you know, he goes out quietly at age 61 of cancer. Just a very sad deal, and you, you hate for someone who's so funny, and I think was on the precipice of a career renaissance after having a bit of a down period. You just hate to be to see a man struck down like that. What 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 were your thoughts on Norm Macdonald and, and how did he personally affect you? Yeah, I, I agree with you that Norm Macdonald as a comedian, you don't get it until you get it. And when you get it, he is the funniest person you have ever yes. listened to. And when he was on Saturday Night Live doing weekend update was was right when I was just reaching the age of being old enough to watch Saturday Night Live. And I mean, he was appointment viewing every week because his weekend updates were so funny and just his ability to deliver straight faced, just thoughtful and hilarious humor was really pretty unmatched. And, you know, I've, I've, I've loved the last 24 hours seeing all, all the things that have been shared on 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 Twitter of, of the clips of the various you know jokes and appearances and, and and things that he was involved in and just being reminded of of how many great things he was a part of and yeah as as as, as you said it's it's tough to see someone go at 61 who had had such a great career and should have had many more years ahead of him, and it, it's very sad to see. But I'm glad to see that it's it's also bringing to light the legacy of just being truly funny. He really was, and I highly encourage you to check out "I'm Not Norm" on YouTube. I don't know who this person is. They're not Norm apparently, but they have put. I mean, just. There's loads of videos on that page of compilations of almost everything he's done, and it's just phenomenal. I would I, I would highly recommend you go there. I know a lot of people talk about the moth joke and everything like that, but I mean there was there, there's just so much more. And gosh, what a treasure! What what an absolute. There's never going to be another one like him. Absolutely, absolutely, a legend of comedy gone too soon for sure. We hate to close on a tragic note, but it's appropriate. Norm Macdonald is, is worthy of, of the respect. What a treasure. Rest in peace. 61 years old, Norm Macdonald. Boyd, I'm ready for the season. I'm ready for hockey it's to come back. It's almost here. Uh, I think we're going to see a, 
a very interesting season, hopefully a very exciting season. Hope it doesn't get off to a start like we saw last year. It's going to be interesting. We, again, we got training camp coming up soon. We'll hopefully uh, come back with another show soon to update you guys on things that have been going on. Well, thank you again for tuning into the first edition of the Predator Way here on Pelion Box Radio. If you, if you like it, then we'll just keep on doing it and feel free to send in your, your questions and and your thoughts. Boyd, where can they find you on the various social spheres? Yeah, you can uh, find me on Twitter at Boyd underscore 1212. And Peyton, where they can they find you? You can find me on Twitter at Peyton underscore Turnage. Also on Instagram at El Patron. I've also started a TikTok, which I swore I would never start. <laughs> but I'm also on TikTok at El Patron. And I actually have a TikTok of me. <laughs> this is funny, boy. Again, we'll, we'll try to wrap this up. I was on vacation at, at dinner, and I saw a man that looked like Luke Combs. So I made a video pretending that I was a fanboy of Luke Combs, and I was going to come up to him and say hi. So I would highly encourage you to check that out. It's also on my on my Instagram. So again, at underscore turns on Twitter, El Patron on TikTok and Instagram. So And of course, you can follow at Penalty Box Radio on all social media platforms. So, Boyd, thanks for doing this. We'll talk again soon. And uh, thanks again, everybody, for tuning into the Predator Way. We'll see you again soon. Thanks, everyone. See you soon.